friend. Hello. Hello, friend. Welcome to Death and Syntaxes, the podcast where we discuss the words behind what makes the crime. I'm Casey. I'm Sarah. Sarah, what does the list have in store for us today? Well, Casey, I'm so glad you asked because I have a question for you. Who are you? (laughs) Don't you... Don't you tease me. Don't you do that. <laughs> I, I want to talk about CSI Day. Oh, a girl after my own you know, heart. Yes. You Vegas, okay. Miami, Gil Grissom, D.B. Russell. Oh. Yeah. Oh, gee. You got to go Gil. Oh, 100%, right? The I, first lady of true crime television, Gil Grissom. Absolutely. <laughs> We're already starting out with very controversial topics here, early on in the pod. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're keeping it like really light. It's fine. So, uh, you know, I, I kid, I kid, we're not going to talk about CSI today, but we are going to talk about forensic science and specifically junk science and how we use them in, cr- uh, uh, in criminal proceedings. Words, words are hard. Words, words, words. <laughs> junk science doesn't exactly have a proper definition other than science that a person considers spurious or fraudulent. Oh, spur- oh spurious. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, when I hear the word spurious, I think of a furious furry, as do most people, correct? <laughs> well, now. <laughs> the the C-squad of uh, superheroes. <laughs> All right. Bring in the spurious. Spuriouses. So, the spuriouses? Spur- spurious? Spurious? Is it like moose? <laughs> Meese? Wait. Speak. Oh, okay. Nope. Keep me down, on track. Keep me down, on track. Down, down a fuzzy hole. What? No. What? <laughs> <laughs> Was going for rabbit hole came out wrong. So aggressive. <laughs> uh, uh, so basically, it's that which cannot be validated by the scientific method. And if you're unfamiliar with the scientific method, Google it. But basically, it's, <laughs> you know, you have a... a hypothesis that you want to test so you design an experiment to test said hypothesis and you Mm -hmm. repeat the experiment and if the results are the same then you can draw your conclusions from there it's just a system by which we test theories and try to validate them in a Mm -hmm. meaningful way beyond the realm of you know crime and law the term junk science has been politicized in reference to things like climate change or secondhand smoking i'm sure everyone is familiar with this if you've watched even a little bit of news basically it's just become this way to insult the other side by calling it junk science and so oh, on. yeah I, I guess like when it's overused so much it, it kind of loses its meaning which is part of why i want to talk about it here today well and i feel like it's 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 very vague it kind of seems like it's such a broad sort of term to use. And so you can you can just throw that in there whenever you want to. And it kind of covers like a blanket statement on things, which seems kind of unfair. It Yeah, it's almost come to mean like, I don't agree with you. Like there's there's some sort of irony in the fact that junk science, you know, being, being science doesn't have mu- much of a way to test it. Or, or define it. It's just bad science. It's unfounded science. I think you can try to make the argument that anything is junk science, but we're, we're going to do our best here today. In yeah, and what do we need? To... More passive aggression in uh, politics? That seems, that seems like we're really hurting for that. So let's add more of it. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> exactly. I mean, obviously, this we just talked about how it can be dangerous when we're dealing with politics or, you know, consumer health, as was the case with secondhand smoking. But it can be particularly dangerous when we're using it in legal proceedings where someone's life can literally be on the line. Right. 
So in 2009, the National Academy of Sciences released a report on forensic science that found that only nuclear DNA evidence to be valid. This report called for research that would examine the scientific foundations and limitations of several critical forensic disciplines, including bite mark analysis, microscopic hair analysis, shoe print comparisons, handwriting comparisons, fingerprint examination, firearms, and tool mark examinations. Okay, I'm so excited because my case, I go over one of those things. So at least I know I I understood the assignment. So that makes me really happy. (laughs) Yay! We're not too far off. It's fine. (laughs) And I'm glad that you're going over it because my next part was going to be I could go into each of these fields and tell you why they're problematic. But as this is a podcast about language and I'm doing the etymology section of this episode, Mm -hmm. I want to get into why it's hard to sort of reconcile the objectives of these fields being law and science. Okay. And I want to clarify, you know, as we sort of try to figure out what junk science is, I'm going to be referring mostly to forensic science. But I think keep in mind this study from, you know, the NAS that nuclear DNA is the only forensic science that they found to be valid. So essentially, okay. when I say forensic science, I'm talking about junk science in this case. Reflecting back on this, uh, Peter Neufeld, the co-founder of the Innocence Project, said, Science and law have existed in two worlds which contradictory principles and paradigms. Before the NAS report, forensics was held accountable only to the principles established by law rather than science. I'm sorry, I can't see NOS and not just sing NOS in my head. <laughs> and then I just graduated to like X, go and give it to you. I just can't. I'm Please. I had to look at it so carefully to not say NSA. In my <laughs> head, it still says NSA. And maybe I need to see somebody about that. But... <laughs> And today we're discovering that Sarah's dyslexic. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> I really should go go into my notes and just space out N-A-S. <laughs> or maybe make a little cheer. I don't know. Really spell it out for yourself. The report, uh, acronym redacted, called <laughs> the scientific community to help the criminal justice system establish the resources and processes needed for forensics to move towards the promise of a neutral t- truth teller. The progress that it set in motion cannot be understated. It is not an exaggeration to say that the report has freed innocent people and saved lives. Yeah. Okay. This is, I believe, so, you know, the report came out in 2009. I want to say it was him reflecting 10 years after it had been released and sort of the effect that it had. So, you know, if you aren't familiar with the Innocence Project, they are basically the best. The best. Yes. (laughs) They work to get wrongful convictions overturned, and they help, you know, legislation to prevent them in the future. As they're Uh, appropriately named, you know. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Their marketing is also very Seriously, I'm like, very, very to the T. Good job, marketing team. (laughs) So like, you know, basically, it's my fucking dream job. If anyone out there from the Innocence Project is listening, uh, just tell me what I have to do to be hired there. I will... I will work for peanuts. Maybe what are you? What are you? Circus elephant? Maybe not. Maybe not peanuts, but like definitely kettle (laughs) chips. Uh, (laughs) We'll work for kettle chips. Yes, not not the brand. Like, please don't add me. But uh, you know the the style of chips. I I don't discriminate. (laughs) What's like a little teapot? Is that (laughs) you have just so many tchotchkes of little teapots? Oh. My, my kitchen is full of teapots. I think once you reach a certain age as a woman, you have to pick your kitchen theme. Mine is teapots. So a little. Okay. 
little side fact about Sarah. <laughs> I have lots of teapots that I don't use and they decorate. My they kitchen. won't pay you so you're homeless, but you do have a, a, quite the impressive I variety make, of kettles. <laughs> I can make you a mean cup of tea. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> keep me on track. I mean, I could. I didn't want to go with an animal. Sorry. Okay. Keep me on track. <laughs> <laughs> this all sounds good, right? But the problem is, if there's no law written requiring this, who's going to do it? Going into you know our legal background, we have Fry. It's a 1923 case, Fry versus the United States, and it's basically involving systolic blood tests, which are the like grandpappy to the polygraph which many people listening I'm sure will know that the polygraph is also inadmissible in court and incredibly problematic. Okay, so. sidebar on that really fast. What is how do you feel about polygraphs? Cuz I know that there are a lot of people that, you know, when confronted, they will tell you do not take a polygraph under any circumstances because the, the inaccuracies and because they are not super reliable. What do you, what do you think? It's tough. I mean like I'd I'd love to take one like for funsies, you know, just to sort of see. Uh, they do that on Real Housewives where they're like, somebody's lying. Let's have them take a polygraph. Like it's just like used as such a tool for them to cause drama. But I mean, like nobody's lives are on the line. So anything for more content, right? Right. Oh yeah. Bravo. I mean, bravo. I'm I'm sure that you already know this, Casey. But of course, I have to drop it any time that I can. I I have a weird relationship with the Real Housewives growing up in Orange County because a couple, one of them went to my school. Yep. And I sort oh of yeah. Saw them. I forgot that filming it around town. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm just at the bowling alley, and I'm like, this is this is what we're doing. This is the Real Housewives. I, there has to be something more interesting going this can't, on. Yeah. The bowling alley. Come <laughs> <Yeah>. on. <laughs> so it's it's that kind of circular argument, right? Like, well, if he's innocent, why wouldn't he take the polygraph test? But as somebody who's incredibly anxious in situations like that and has issues with authority, I can see myself failing that. Oh my God. Yeah. Because of my demeanor. I got a Fitbit for Christmas, like, I don't know, a couple of years ago and I put it on and I was watching my heart rate because new thing on my wrist, I want to look at it. And I, I'm no joke. My dad brought out the bacon and my heart rate jumped 10 beats per minute. So I'm like, I cannot, I can't, just, I would do I'm sorry, so seeing the bacon. <laughs> like I'm even, a visual person. Okay. I haven't even taken a bite yet. Mind over oh, matter. I love that so much. <laughs> it was a very aggressive time. I was like, oh, wow. I need to evaluate a little bit. Thank you, Fitbit, for teaching me this information about myself. <laughs> I'm like, I think I have bigger problems. Good thing I bought this Fitbit. But I, no, you you make a good point because if you're talking about polygraph testing, it also makes me think of, you know, like people automatically assume, oh, so-and-so lawyered up. That must mean they're guilty. Absolutely not. Yeah. Absolutely not. I have heard so many lawyer friends or, you know, people in the, my family that are lawyers and it's like, get a lawyer, period. Like, just lawyer up and it's it's so frustrating because we do have that perception of oh okay they don't take the polygraph they don't want to so they must be guilty and i have a hard time trying to decipher i have to remind myself hey be object as objective as possible when i'm like listening to maybe podcasts or watching documentaries or you know whatever true crime content i'm taking in that day you know yeah. about those kind of unwritten rules like to, doesn't mean it's not not for sure you know no absolutely and i mean like in reference to the lawyer thing like that's 
why we Mirandize people to let them know about their rights. One of them is their Aww. right to, you know. Yeah, RIP uh, Miranda rights, though. One of them, you know, is the right to the lawyer. I mean, and also a lot of people in the true crime world know that cops can lie to you and they can manipulate what? you. And they, yeah, cops can legally lie to you. What? And it, you, you know, no? What? This is <laughs> shocking information. <laughs> so, I mean, of course, yeah, you want to get legal representation as soon as anything happens. Don't say anything. So anyway, uh, going back to Fry. Um, yes, Okay. We're in 1923. This is sort of establishing um, a precedent for how we allow scientific evidence, scientific like expert witnesses. So what we get from Fry, quote, the thing from which the deduction is made is sufficiently established to have gained general acceptance in the particular field which it belongs. So it's like totally like follow super that. clear, right? You totally Ex- get I don't. Explain it to me like I'm a six-year-old. We like can if, just if, go ahead and move on. No? Oh, okay. So so basically what it's saying is, here's an example. Like, we all know old Teddy B, right? Our favorite, you know, political pundit. Mr. Bear, of course. Oh, sure. Different Teddy B. Okay. Necrophile, pedophile, you know, drove a Volkswagen bug. Uh, Huh. Yep. There it is. Ringing the bell. Started the career of Ann Rule. Um, So his trial- Never heard of him. (laughs) His trial was the first nationally televised criminal trial, and it provided the, you know, amuse-bouche, if you will, for the public's now very healthy appetite for forensic science. Yeah, it was amusing. <laughs> <laughs> Give me that one, please. Oh. I, I, I did. I'm trying to lob you softballs here, you know. <laughs> As this trial was going on, this group of orthodontists is developing this new field called forensic odontology. Mm-hmm. And they say that they can match the bite marks from Ted's murders at the Chi Omega house, which right. is after he escaped. It's in Florida, right? Mm-hmm. I think. Yep. Yeah. So this is the problem with Fry. These dentists who are developing this new field say that it's sound and that they can do this. But the only ones that can say that they're capable of it is them. And here we are going in this circle. So the people that can validate the forensic field are usually highly specialized in the ones in the field. There's no oversight or, you know, agency that has to approve of this. It's like a lot of law. It's very vaguely written, right? That's the standard by which a lot of courts still operate today. This is so now we're going on. A hundred years. God, that's upsetting. But anyway, sorry. <laughs> that is really bizarre. Two reasons. One, just because it's like, I feel like it should go without saying if it's somebody comes in saying, oh, I'm an expert, and then you take their word for for Bible, for you know what I mean? And it's like, okay, well, that would make sense if you're an expert. But then we have situations like the staircase with the blood spatter analysis. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that, then you have that enter, and I don't know why my brain went right to like it's it sounds very culty, like it's like no I know and I'm the only one that knows, so you have to believe me. I was just like right to Jim Jones, and I just couldn't couldn't unhear that. There's so. a lot of ego tied up in it, and I you find that unfortunately with a lot of like these scientist doctor yeah. types. Um, I mean, and honestly, when you look at at um, Ted Bundy's trial with these uh, orthodontists, they were at least a little bit more truthful about 
what they knew and what they didn't know. You know, they said, this is a new field. We're pretty sure that this matches. And, you know, they they got lucky in that case because, like, Ted Bundy had a, like, fucked up grill. It mm-hmm. was all over the place. And, mm-hmm. you know, we're there. I'm not trying to cast any doubt on that. He did it. We know. It's just right. the way that he was convicted and what it sort of started is what we're examining here. Um, well, and to and, that point, it's I think it's don't get complacent with where we are. We don't know what we don't know. And it in its infancy, it still is in its infancy, like DNA as it is. We all know it came about in the 80s. Like I was born in 89. It's as old as I am. And we can't know that much. And it's just going to keep growing. Yeah, I think that we just need to look at it with a critical eye. And I think mm-hmm. that this sort of um, platform that this started on, like, you know, this first nationally televised trial, criminal trial with a notorious piece of shit. I don't know. I can't think of a better word. But yeah, like everyone, word. Every, <laughs> everyone was watching it. And so everyone was seeing this happen. And it sort of created this foundation for why we revere these, you know, expert witnesses, like, and why we just believe them without looking at, I mean, and who, who could blame anybody? We're, we're just like lay people. We aren't scientists. We have no, you know, background to say that they're wrong. No, absolutely. Um, I mean, as a, as an armchair analyst, when I sit there, it's just kind of like those memes that it's like, and they left their fingerprint on the handle. And it's like me on my 10th chicken nugget. I'm like, what an idiot. It's like, no, <laughs> like I have a lot of issue with things of this nature. And just because I have a problem doesn't necessarily mean I have an answer. And I recognize that, that that's that's problematic in and of itself. But, you know, if we get the conversation going and also give these people credit, but hold them accountable. Yeah. But that's also what you're saying is that it's kind of hard. There is no really overseeing entity to like keep them honest is that that's what you're saying right yeah there is and there's not you know i'm gonna i'm gonna dive into it a little bit more oh, okay. in a second here but sorry i got that, you excited no that's okay i love it I'm here for it but, but basically that you know the way that law is written versus science is what creates these sort of problems and i think that we just need to be aware of the differences and respect them as such. And at the end, I'll talk a little bit about, you know, things that we can do now that would improve the situation, at least like within the current um, judicial system that we have. Cool. So, so Fry is what we're using when we're talking about criminal proceedings. So in 1993, there was a Supreme Court case, uh, Daubert. It, it, it looks like Daubert. It is not. No, the family, even if you go on the Wikipedia page, there is a section of how to pronounce Daubert. So it <laughs> reminds me of that scene in Joe Dirt when he's like, it's Dear yes. Tay, not Dirt. Yes. <laughs> like, oh my God. Don't church it up, Dirt. Well, you know, just go ahead and flip that and reverse it. And we get yes. Daubert. Oh, down, flip it and reverse. <laughs> Let's go. Yes. So this is great, right? Except that it only applies to civil litigation. And the situation with the Daubert case is is sad. Basically, these people were giving birth um, to these children with defects, and they were trying to link some of the medication from this company as the cause of the defects. And they brought in their experts to testify. And of course, this company with all of this money, and you know, they're they're having this is like during a period where there are increasing um, civil lawsuits. 
and a lot of these, you know, like big settlements that we would hear about, like in the 90s. That's how this case happened, essentially. Huh, okay. All right. Money talks and more That's minorities and poor people are sent to jail on poor scientific evidence. Is that... That's the saying, oh, right? Oh, you're, you mean you're saying that the judicial system is not set up systemically to not be on the side of poor people and people of color? That's shocking. Hot take. Hmm. <laughs> Man, I'm really coming up with new ideas here, huh? Mm-hmm. Frontiers woman. Don't, don't. I will, I will go into an Oregon Trail thing and we do not have time today. So... <laughs> We don't have time for dysentery. We do not have time for Oregon Trail. I have to trail. forge the river at noon. Something I never thought I would say. I hate being a grown-up. <laughs> <laughs> so let's, on that note, now that we've covered a little bit of, like, the legal background and precedent that we're working with, let's, like, take a deeper dive into why science and law don't always jive word-wise, which I apologize that sounded like some weird spoken word. <laughs> I was like, are you writing a haiku? Thing. What is it? <laughs> I... You know, you can't just say that I, I, everything I say is a haiku because I'm Japanese, you know? <laughs> Listen, it was beautiful. I just, it was great. <laughs> like, damn it. Did I accidentally write a haiku? So profound. You, you accidentally, it's just uh. in your blood to accidentally write in like prose. Just how it comes out. <laughs> um, Lord. So this is coming from an article by Phoebe C. Ellsworth. It's an excellent like scholarly article. It's called Legal Reasoning and Scientific Reasoning. And I'm going to just take up the part where she talks about like four main differences between these fields. Okay. So one is the lack of opportunity for empirical testing. And so basically when evidence is ambiguous, scientists can just go out and collect new data. Whereas in a courtroom, judges are constrained by the evidence that's put in front of them. You know, attorneys can bring in new information, but this is typically in the form of, you know, expert witnesses and testifying about research that they've already done in the past. They can't go out and conduct more research real quick based on this case most of the time. Let's say. Right. So, and the goal of the attorney, like, obviously is to win the case and they have a legal obligation to do what's best for their client. So if an expert is you know, find scientific evidence against this goal, they're not going to appear in court. And if the witness objects to, you know, a lack of scientific truth, they're not going to appear in court. The attorney can find someone who's going to testify to help his his or her case, essentially. Well, and I kind of talk about that a little bit in my cases. You ha Well, maybe not in that regard, but like sometimes there is incentivizing too. You, you, like you have fewer morals to testify. You all, you may be incentivized. If you testify here, then we'll give you X, Y, and Z. Yeah. And this also, this, I mean, this just, it reminds me specifically, they can take that information and twist it exactly how they want to. I know that's not a profound thought, but it makes me think of, we look at empirical testing and, and one thing that anybody listening, <clears throat> excuse me, should know about Sarah is she's, always really good about reminding me when it comes to things. She showed me this subreddit called data is beautiful data, data, data. And who knows? <laughs> there's no way to know, you know, we'll, well, we'll yeah, never, we'll be never know. No. And so, <laughs> <laughs> but I'll be reading something. I'm like, is this different? Is I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I just, 
I just give up and I'm like, I don't, mo- moving picture. But she, <laughs> she, like, I'll say something about, this is really cool. Have you read this, like, set of data? And she's like, okay, but you have to remember it's, it's, it's a test group. So it's not actually true. And I'm like, yeah, that was fun. But you're right. But that was fun. But it's also, <laughs> you know, you have a thousand people. There Sarah, can be a thousand of fun. <laughs> <laughs> you fun sucker. There's... <laughs> There, but there could be – it's those specific thousand people, and then if you go into another empirical test, it's a different set of thousand people. I was so frustrated when I was writing my thesis, and I would go through and read these test audiences, and I'm like, that's not that's not fair at all. This can't be a basis of information. But at the same time, you know, we can learn something from everything, and maybe it's an opportunity for us to learn what we don't want to know, you know? It was one of – the things that I had such an issue with when I was studying like the social sciences in college is that you learn all of this stuff and it's so interesting and it's so cool and you want to share it with everybody. But social scientific testing is still very much in its infancy. And how do we really test empirically? So I I went to all this school and I love talking about this stuff, but then I talk to somebody and they say something contrary to my opinion. And it's like, well, uh, I can't really prove you wrong. Basically, your opinion is just as valid as mine. I might have more evidence to back mine up, but we we really don't know. So like, the fuck was the point of this? Oh my God. Uh, <laughs> There's a joke somewhere of putting you in a room with like a flat earther and like, uh, and just see how you would do. Let's not, let's not conflate it with actual science. I said social science. <laughs> why, why people do what they do. The earth is round. Another hot take. Uh, (laughs) Exactly what you were saying um, about twisting stuff to say whatever you want it to and twisting data. What ends up happening with a lot of these experts is instead of presenting something as like, well, you know, we have this information. And so we can say with this amount of certainty that this happened, but we can't say with 100% certainty. Or what ends up happening is that you get these sort of fringe scientists who will say, 100% 100% that's the hair, 100% that's the bite mark with 100% certainty because that's what you want to hear in a legal proceeding, even if there's no evidence to back that up. And I, I don't want to read the whole quote, but it came from uh, Susan Hack. And basically what she said is, so you get, quote, those whose views have become dogmatically entrenched in the course of their involvement in the litigation process and no doubt a few outright cranks and a few outright whores. So she, <laughs> oh, the personal ad writes itself. I love it. Yes. Just straight to the point there. So the second difference is the need for immediate decision. It kind of goes in with that first one is that like, if there's not enough data, scientists can go out and collect more. If mm-hmm. they don't have enough data, they're not going to draw a conclusion because that doesn't fall in line with the scientific method. But in a courtroom, obviously, I mean, sometimes there's hung juries, mistrials. It's not to say that everything ends in a decision, but more often than not, it does, right? That's the entire point of this is to Mm -hmm. decide what happened and what to do about it. Right. Thirdly, uh, yeah, I'm just fancy. (laughs) Apparently, if you make something an adverb, it just immediately feels fancier. (laughs) Uh, Is it grammatically correct? I don't know. I don't care. I'm I'm saying it. Thirdly, the (laughs) structuriously. spuriously and thirdly the structure of categorical thinking versus continuous variables so this kind of goes into what i was saying about this gray area 
the law doesn't really allow much for that. You know, we're looking, people are sane or they're inside sane. Their, you know, actions are deliberate or they're unintentional. They're yeah, guilty do or, or do not. not. There is no try. Yep. Thank you, Yoda. <laughs> you know, there's some leniency in sentencing, but even that's kind of going away with mandatory minimums and three strike laws and everything is just terrible. <laughs> uh, but moving on. In science, uh, you often have, you know, a, they call it a convergent validity. It's like this coalescence of many studies using many methods, each with like their own flaws, their own strengths. And when you put all of them together, you can sort of reach a confu- uh, con- confusion, a conclusion. <laughs> There's a Freudian slip for I, you. I'm confused. Uh, <laughs> it's a state of life at this point. It's, it's just early. These are big words. Uh, <laughs> At some point, I understood it, I promise. But basically, (laughs) like, so if some studies aren't as strong as others, you can still combine all of them and reach a general conclusion. Kind of like what we were saying with analyzing different, like, social scientific tests. If one study could only have 100 people because of the nature of the test, but this other one is going over decades and has thousands of people testing similar things, and we can combine them and sort of draw, you know, conclusions from that yeah it's so like like a venn diagram that's like what i'm picturing it's just like that totally middle part okay yeah yep okay i'm with you 100 percent. this is sort of the goal of a trial right you have witnesses expert opinions testimony but we don't really examine the strength of each of these in any like objective way the prosecution will argue their witnesses are right and the defense is going to do the same Mm -hmm. and you know we're, we're just leaving it to these jury people who are being paid $15 an hour and maybe get lunch to (laughs) adjudicate how strong of an argument it is. Yeah. And then with when you're given this information based on, like we talked about with the Ted Bundy trial, based on all these shows that we've had that, you know, portray forensic science as this ultimate solution, ultimate uh, decider, Juries are more likely to take that evidence um, in higher regard than they would like a witness testimony. Well, it's really interesting, too, because I know I've listened to some podcasts and, you know, watched some some stuff about different people that actually work in the field, and they just call it the CSI effect. And they are <laughs> not the biggest fans. They're like, I get it based on the drama. We're all looking for the drama. But, it, you know, you're not going to have, you know, Gil coming in and getting – I need this tested now. And they go in and they put it under a microscope and it's like, it's a match in 15 minutes. They're like, "Uh uh-uh, that's going to take you, you're talking weeks that you have to wait. And so the impatience that people have now because of all that too, people don't realize how slow the the proceedings actually are. No, absolutely. And I mean, like, I have to say the CSI thing. There was another podcast that I was listening to and they were talking about an episode of CSI where Gil like, bends down at a crime scene and takes this, puts his finger in something and then like eats it. And he's basically like, no, not human. And it's like, <laughs> I'm sorry. Is, is this what we want to say is happening at crime scenes? People are eating stuff, not knowing whether it's human or not. Like, nope. Bone tastes like garlic. I know it. I know. Uh, like what? How, how do you develop a palate for that? Why do you know? Oh, but 14-year-old me was sitting there. I'm like, this is good. Yes. <laughs> yes. Like, mom, mom, do we have any bones? I need to grind them up and taste them. It's for research. It's 
<laughs> Mom, can we get bones on the way home? Honey, we have bones at home. Okay. We're not going out to get bones. We have them at home. <laughs> uh, no, I got nothing. There is a joke there. I. <laughs> You'll think of it at 3 a.m. and you're going to jump up and be like, bone joke. <laughs> It'll happen. And my partner's going to be like, bone joke. Yeah, I know. I was like, hey, I'm lobbing <laughs> yeah. that one up for you. Yeah. There uh-huh. it is. <laughs> It's like every time I forgot someone's ranch when I was serving and I would wake up at 3 a.m. and be like, shit. Oh, my God. Ranch. I still have nightmares about that kind of oh, thing. Oh, yeah. I don't I don't even work in a bar or restaurant anymore. Yeah, and I still wake up panicked. Same. Server dreams are I never refill table three's water. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, kind of like what you were talking about with, like, the CSI effect. Like, I personally think that, like, the true crime uh, community, for lack of a better term, like, we've we've done a lot of, like, sort of debunking the the judicial side and like the law enforcement side of mm-hmm. these shows like we know that that's not reality and that's not how it goes but it seems like we're a little bit behind on the forensic science side of it i don't know maybe because it's not as flashy and juicy as you know a serial killer or <laughs> yeah whatever but it it has the same problems and it has the same you know i guess subconscious effect on the public when we consume this so Fourthly, oh, I'm, okay. I'm sticking to this now, individualized decisions versus probabilistic reasoning and the dispositional bias. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yep. Okay, good. I could just move on. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so your, your dis, dis, uh, dispositional bias is basically when you attribute someone's behavior based on their internal characteristics rather than outside influences. Okay. So to me, we're going back to that like nature versus nurture argument, but it's, you know, when you're looking at another person and individualized decisions versus probabilistic reasoning goes back to what we were talking about with these scientific studies. So if you have somebody who appears in court as an expert witness and they'll talk about Their research that they did, you know, say there were 300 people who were addicted to drugs. They found so many people out of this group went on to commit violent crimes. Well, that group is not this person that is on trial right now. So how can we say that this provides any sort of, you know, evidence for or against this person? We can't really use that reasoning when we're talking about an individual. And that becomes sort of problematic. It, it leads into that same thing of experts that are saying they're 100% sure because they know that they can't generalize or it won't be effective. They won't be called to testify. Well, it feels like you're skewing that information. It's like, if have you ever read any of those things that are, you know, it, people that have drank a cup of coffee in their life are 100% more likely to die. It's like, but so no, because- that's not a thing. Like they everyone take- who drinks water will die. Yeah, exactly. Period. That's what 100% I'm saying. Yeah. confident. Yep. <laughs> but you're t- but you take this idea and Actually, you're maybe just- not Elon Musk, but yeah. that'll remains to be seen. Sorry. <laughs> oh no. We're not nope, can't go there. Um but <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's just you're trying to take that information and strictly make it so it backs up your story. Yes. You're just kind of skewing the words a little bit. It's like, I think of when you look at a bar graph and you zoom in and it's like, oh man, the difference between a hundred and one is such a big deal. But if you zoom out, it doesn't look as big of a, 
a difference depending upon your your view of it. It's all about perspective. Yeah. And unfortunately, as much as we seek like objectivity, it doesn't really exist in a lot mm-hmm. of cases. And especially when we're talking about crime. Obviously, you know, like I said before, nuclear DNA is the only thing that we found to be completely valid. And that's a specific type of DNA too. It's not mitochondrial DNA, which is like something that you would get off of think like a hair sample or something like it's a basically like dna from from the bulb of the hair correct yeah like i think that that's mitochondrial dna and that can you know show a relation but it won't show a hundred percent match i do believe i've heard that i think that's true in you know my super expert opinion yes (laughs) oh god i feel validated but no but so but it's taking something that has absolutely nothing to do with it and trying to just like fit the circle in the square. You know what I mean? The, I mean, it, it sort of cuts both ways, right? Like these studies can be useful for the defense or the prosecution, depending on the case. And they, I mean, I guess almost like the mitochondrial DNA, that's not really the best comparison, but like those studies are effective in, you know, like probabilistic reasoning. Like, yes, we've seen this so many times before. So yes, it is likely that this person did this based on what we know about them and based mm-hmm. on these studies, but we cannot say with absolute certainty. Um, I just feel like it's like when somebody's waving over on one side and then they punch you in the jaw with the other side. <laughs> like it's like when? Yeah. Does well, this happen to you? <laughs> <laughs> like the when implies like a, like a lot. Like listen, <laughs> I'm gonna need you to take a polygraph on what you were doing yesterday. <laughs> No, are you, you came a, at me waving. Are you in a safe space right I, now? Are, <laughs> I'm blinking twice, okay? <laughs> I forget what twice was. God, I should have written down the code. <laughs> so uh, those are those are the four, you know, major differences that uh, Phoebe details. And so based on that, uh, where are we now and where should we go? Uh, this is not a remix of God, oh, Joe. Oh. I, I heard it. It again. I'm so happy. I'm so happy you addressed that. <laughs> Fucking got her. <laughs> okay, just for anybody, Sarah and I were so close to getting Cotton Eye Joe tattoos at CrimeCon last year in Vegas. We were like, "Oh, do we do it? Do we do it?" It's still on the docket. I really think that the issue was what Cotton Eye Joe tattoo and where. I. It, <laughs> it's not really an issue of if; it's more when. When. <laughs> Please don't sue us. We're gonna get sued. What? Joe himself is going to sue us. I didn't sing it. I mean, those are just words. I just said sentences. <laughs> <laughs> you don't is, own the term cotton eye Joe. I was going to say, is there only one cotton eye Joe? <laughs> Can you imagine being the second cotton eye Joe and you're just pissed because you didn't get a song? You're like, come on. Cotton eye Joe Jr. <laughs> like the kids bop version of cotton eye Joe. Cotton eye Joseph. Yes, please. <laughs> God, that Joseph was my father. Yeah. (laughs) How dare you? So, okay. Backing up. Where are we now? Where should we go? Moving on. No more references. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) The federal authorities launched an investigation in 2012 after the Washington Post reported that flawed forensic hair matches might have led to the convictions of hundreds of potentially innocent people since at least the 1970s. (sighs) typically for murder, rape, and other violent crimes nationwide. And I mean, this is horrible, obviously, horrible. that yeah. this happened. Um, and, it ha- and it went on for so long. But I have to at least give the FBI credit. I mean, they did it after they were called out by, <laughs> uh, you know, 
journalist, but they did address it and they did start investigating these cases. And the last time I checked, I believe they had gotten through about 500 of 3,000 that they had pulled. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, And, you know, going back to the Innocence Project, that's a lot of the work that they do is looking over particularly these, you know, uh, microscopic hair analysis cases. Unfortunately, like on that same, you know, statistical note, like I think it was 31 of like 34 cases that resulted in the death penalty, I think had already been put to death. And they found or died waiting on death row. And they found that 93% of those cases had issues in the trial. So there is nothing really that can be done about that. I mean, that's so hard. I was going to ask you that that in my brain immediately went to capital punishment. And it's one of the reasons why I am I am not pro death penalty. For that exact reason, I would rather somebody sit in prison than ever unintentionally hopefully, unintentionally put someone to death for a crime they didn't commit. Yeah. I mean, I'm against the death penalty as well, mostly for, I guess, practical reasons as, I don't know, as uncaring as that sounds, but it's more expensive to put someone to death than it is to keep them in prison. And then I don't even have to like address the moral issue um, of doing it. So on that note of the Innocence Project, you know, sort of working on these cases, uh, the Innocence Project has had 241 victories in overturning ah, wrongful convictions. <laughs> 53 were convicted on bad forensic evidence. 194 clients were exonerated by DNA. And somebody sat down and did the math and figured out that their clients had spent 3,754 <sighs> years combined wrongly incarcerated. That is horrifying. That is so stressful. It's it's incredibly horrifying because, I mean, these are people that we know were wrongly incarcerated, and so it could happen to anyone. Wrong place, wrong time. You know, there's a famous uh, Innocence Project story about this guy. Uh, I think his name is, I want to say Brandon Mayfield. And essentially there was like a bombing on a train in Spain. And they were trying to figure out who do it, did it. So they have like the FBI involved and they pull this fingerprint. It's like a partial fingerprint, but it matches this guy, Brandon Mayfield. And no. Yeah. And <laughs> he, he didn't end up doing any jail time because they just realized that it was ridiculous. But he had never been to Spain. Oh, he had. Lord. Yeah, actually, this this like Spanish authorities were like, uh, no, we're pretty sure that this is that's not the guy. That doesn't really make any <laughs> sense. But of course, here in the U.S., we were like. I think he was a lawyer. He was a lawyer and he had, I I don't want to mess up the nationality of his wife, but he had like done some work with Islam. And so immediately like, oh, well, he must be a terrorist. Oh my God. <laughs> because I, I don't so think he had a passport. In this country. Oh my Lord. It, that, that just reminds me of that thing you read where it's like, oh, if you donate your hair and somebody who buys the wig commits a crime. And again, it's just going back, like it's been debunked because your hair follicles are not actually in the wig. So sure, it may match your hair, but it's like, it's that same thing. It's like, he's like, huh, that's funny. You mean that never meme I sent you? I've been to Spain. <laughs> that, oh, that yeah. story, I'm like, I'm pretty sure that was a Twitter thing I sent you. But yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, you know, like, what's, what's, what's the answer? What do we, what do we, what do we do about this? I, I, I don't fucking know. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm kidding. I promised that there was going to be some hope at the end of this. So uh, there are a couple of things that we can do. Um, one of the big ones is, you know, separating forensic science units or CSI units or CSU units, whatever you want to call them, um, mm-hmm. from law enforcement. And I feel like this should be obvious, right? Like many scientists only get paid for convictions. If the accused is found innocent, they're not responsible for paying the fees associated with the charge. So obviously, this is creating an incentive to match what evidence they're given. Otherwise, they're not going to get paid. And like on the same note, like when they're working with law enforcement, it's not a blind test. It's some police officer bringing them this information, telling them about the case, what's going on, who who they suspect. And like, this is a case of confirmation bias when you're just given. Yes. Yeah. It, especially when you're given like the background of what's happening and you're just given maybe like two pieces of evidence to compare. It's pretty easy to say that they're the same when you have this information in your head versus just being handed evidence with no explanation or testing them against a ton of other pieces of evidence. It's like one thing that's like pro- really problematic with like the bite mark thing, the hair thing. It's like, sure, these are similar, but there's no way of knowing if there aren't other similar bite marks or hair samples out there because we've only tested these ones that we have. Right. Well, and even you're thinking, just let's say that a scientist, for whatever reason, they're like, okay, well, I'm they're maybe they're an anti Semite. And then they get, you know, a piece of hair that they have two comparisons to make. And it's like, who done it? Are they going to go with the blonde hair? Or are they going to go with the, the dark hair? It's just, I know it's like such an extreme case and you just never know, but that that's, that exists there. It's so, that's so scary. And it's so easy to talk about, but this happens all the time. And I feel like people with a lot of things, they don't care until it happens to them. Yeah. Um, and I mean, like along those same lines, like you were talking about with the anti-Semitic scientist, classic scientist, you know. Classic scientist. That's <laughs> <laughs> so what do you do for fun, Bob. Uh... <laughs> Not have bagels with locks on them for the, the weekend. Like, I don't, what? <laughs> uh, so another thing that we can and probably should do is create an independent agency to oversee w- the, what's happening at these labs, right? Um, it should not be a part of the police department. It probably shouldn't be a part of the court system. It probably should come from a government entity like the National Academy of Sciences or some independent body that can work to examine this stuff. Mm-hmm. Which I've I read that there are a couple of agencies that are kind of starting to do this. Basically what it is is like I think the police department has to volunteer to be a part of it. And then they'll pick random random testing and random samples to uh to test from scientists and then essentially like blacklist them like publicly shame them if they find out that the work is bad so you know these scientists have no idea which test is going to be picked so the idea being that it incentivizes them to do good work yeah and this is something on a very small scale right now but it's hopeful and they've i i can't remember the exact numbers but they've had good results from it so another another, like potential solution yeah so that's like what we can do in terms of like separating labs from law enforcement. Chris Fabricant from the Innocence Project, he does a lot of work overturning these cases. He's an attorney. He's got a fun little story. It's like the, the Hallmark movie that I want. Uh, his dad was a public defender 
and met his mom when he had to defend her for, I think, a drug trafficking charge. And that's... <laughs> Stop it. Yeah. Oh my <laughs> Sidebar, I just went to visit my cousin. He lives in uh, like a part of Western North Carolina. And I was he was telling me about him and his wife, who I'd never met them before. I'd always heard they're super nice. But <laughs> so I was like, so how did you guys meet? And they told me that they worked in a forensic lab. He was actually a doctor for a long time, but they were like, no, yeah, we met at an autopsy. I was like, are you joking? I could not text Sarah fast enough to be like, this is what we need. I need a movie. Is this not the your dream? They is met it at called an autopsy. Over My Dead Body? Oh, it is. <laughs> TM, TM. <laughs> oh, I want it. I want oh, it Oh, so we're going to start. Oh, we need to start a dating service for that. <laughs> Uh, that's the one thing that true body. crime hasn't done yet oh. we need we need true crime tinder <laughs> okay, i don't see it i don't see any potential issues there no absolutely <laughs> it's really safe <laughs> who's your favorite murderer oh funny mine too okay. <laughs> we should go get coffee what? <laughs> oh my god uh, so we fun. have fun over here at death and sin taxes I, I watch a lot of you know romantic comedies and terrible hallmark movies it's like murder and mayhem or like <laughs> like i inherited a cabin in new hampshire and i'm gonna go <laughs> and there's nothing in between and i you know they're so unrealistic i inherited a cabin in the woods or whatever and i just oh, happened yeah. to meet this guy who lives next door and is hot and has a deceased wife and we fell in love but then i hear real life stories that are like you know maybe it isn't that far-fetched maybe like, it isn't yeah you know, love shows up in unexplained places we just spoof every rom-com it's like made in manhattan or are they <laughs> like we just like things that are already made but we're just gonna make them true crime <laughs> Oh, but then it's like made like M-A-D-E. Correct. Yeah. See? It, She's actually just... part of the witness protection program. It's all satire. Oh, it's a bit. <laughs> okay, put it on the list. Yep. All right. Keep so, on track. Here's my here's my last little thing of like something that has been effective other places. Uh it's called hot tubbing, which I love this term. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And- and for everyone out there, I gave Casey some notes, you know, just to sort of brief her on what I was doing before the show. And I was like, when you scroll through there, there's gonna it's just going to say hot tubbing. There's no explanation. Just, just go ahead and go with <laughs> yes, it. I'll explain, I'll explain later. But we're going to end it hot tubbing. Uh, <laughs> so basically, it's a term or well, not a term. It's a practice that's used in Australia. And it's an alternative to the adversarial expert witness testimony. So you have your expert get together like Sorry, your expert, my expert, they get together with the judge and all three of them have to decide what the evidence says, what the scientific truth is. They have to come to some unified opinion. That way, that's just what's presented in court as like, okay, here's the science. That's the science side of it. And it's a little bit more of a neutral body as opposed to, you know, cross-examination and trying to get the best witness for your case. Like, there's no incentive to do that because it's just going to get washed out. I'm calling bullshit on the judges and the scientists. That's just their wink-wink way of knowing that they want to hang out after work. They're just like, are we going <laughs> hot tubbing? Wink. Like, well, it conjures a great image in my mind of, you know, all these sort of stereotypical, like, nerdy scientists, like, in a hot tub, like, with their white shirt on. <laughs> <laughs> hey, yeah, the, with the judge and his powdered wig. and Glasses are all of- fogged. Oh, they have to have a powdered wig. Oh, glasses <laughs> are fogged. Yeah, they all have glasses. It, all I think of is there was this 
it was a bit that Nick Swartzen did on one of his old standups. And he was like, you know, I just for once, I want to see a movie. I want to go in and I want to be watching the previews. And it's like really terrible and serious, you know, like seven children ripped from their homes. Will the mother be able to find them in time? And then he's like, but the title has absolutely nothing to do with the movie. And it's like, coming this summer from the makers of Made in Manhattan is boner soup. And he's like, what? I didn't see a boner or a soup in that entire, the show about the kids? There's no, I don't, okay. It just, I'm like, that term makes no sense, but I love it. No, we're not getting bones. Your mother is making boner soup at home. (laughs) Get home. All the kids are gone. Yes. (laughs) I love love the callback to Made in Manhattan. (laughs) I'm watching that today. Listen. <laughs> God, she is just timeless. She looks better now somehow. Oh, it's so irritating. I'm like, okay, calm down, you, Pharrell and Paul Rudd. Y'all aren't aging, okay? Mm-mm-mm. So that's, uh, th- there is some hope. Uh, there are some things that we could do. And, you know, yeah. like we just talked about, I really just think that we need to, as a society, be a little bit more critical of forensic science maybe maybe science in general especially like now where we live in an age where all the science quote-unquote science is argumentative and saying different things like it's not it's not supposed to be be like that it's just it's just supposed supposed to be science (laughs) so your science and my science aren't supposed to be so far apart so i think that we just need to have a little bit more skepticism and have a little bit more of a critical eye towards that Absolutely. in legal proceedings. I mean, critical thinking can go a long way. And just remembering that we are still learning. Again, you don't know what you don't know. So. Yeah. And I mean, on that note, a little bit of like humility too. being able to admit our, Mm -hmm. you know, that that science isn't as good as we thought it once was going back, reexamining these cases and having an open mind as to what we're allowing in, in court and changing that if need be. Right. So. Cool. Anyway, uh, I'm gonna go ahead and pass the microscope over oh. to Casey for oh, a l- yeah. You like that? You see what I did there? <laughs> <laughs> for a closer look at that an example of uh- <laughs> how dare you? First of all, <laughs> all right. Are you ready for my case? Oh, I sure am. Okay. So, first of all, I love that you gave the Innocence Project such a huge shout out because that allows me to just seamlessly segue into my case, which is an Innocence Project case. Yay! Um, I know. And so, okay, what I love about the Innocence Project, obviously, other than what they do, is their website's super cool. I spent, like, a lot of time on there when I was trying to find a case to cover, um, And oh, it's so hard because I just wanted to tell all these people's stories. But it's so cool because you can go on to their site and you can filter like you're on Amazon or, you know, whatever. And you can filter it based on like different types of like you're looking for, oh, they were exonerated on hair analysis or it was like faulty, whatever. Like, it's just so cool that they have that option for you to be able to be like, I want to narrow it down. It's just, I just love that that's a thing. So um, oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. I, I didn't click around very much for my case on there. I didn't realize that you could filter. Yeah. Like <laughs> the shopping so cool. on Amazon is sort of living in my head rent free now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I'm like equating like the, the price low to high with like time spent in jail, which is seriously horrible. But <laughs> <laughs> it's like average customer review on every innocence is like five stars. Like absolutely yeah. would recommend. <laughs> So anyway, so it worked out perfectly that you highlighted the Innocence Project. Again, please hire Sarah. She's wonderful. Um, I will reference for her. Um, (laughs) 
So yeah, way to go team on that. So um, today I am going to cover the case of Kevin Martin. So I got uh, the information for Kevin's case from obviously the Innocence Project, um, also the National Registry of, spoiler alert, exonerations. I don't think you saw this going <laughs> any other way. Um, and also the Washington Post. Alrighty. So on November 1st, 1982, it's going to get a little, little rough here. Uh, the partially clothed body of 19 year old Ursula Brown was discovered next to a dumpster between an elementary school and an apartment building in Washington, DC. I hate that you had to throw an elementary school. I know. It just makes it extra I, sinister. There was a, a, a going through the different like articles that I got my information. One of them took elementary out <laughs> And I, I, it hit me a little bit harder when I read elementary. I was like, I have to, I have to add it. So it no, just, absolutely. you know, so anyways. All right. So Ursula, she was abducted after her car was hit from behind on the Anacostia freeway. And I had to look up how to pronounce that. So I hope that's correct. Um, she was abducted during what they call a bump and rob. So I have written it literally in my notes. I have insert bump and rob joke, which that went over super well. That never got done. Who's anyway, bump. <laughs> <laughs> this is the Ro- worst rap Robert? group I've ever heard of. Robert. <laughs> bump and Robert. <laughs> Anyways, so so her death was pretty gruesome. Um, she had been raped. Her body had slash wounds, and she was shot in the head. Uh, a pair of her sneakers, along with some of her other belongings, were also found near the scene. And I highlight the sneakers purposefully. Um, because it's something that we're going to circle back to. So enter William Davidson. What's that? (laughs) Were they a via? I had to throw that in there. (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) terrible. Sorry. I'm moving on. (laughs) (laughs) Please do. So William Davidson enters the story here. So between October 20th and November 8th of the same year, Davidson committed multiples of those bump and Roberts. Uh, So a bump and rob, (laughs) a bump and rob, it's when you... I, I had to look this up. I know it kind of seems pretty self-explanatory, but it's when you bump into another car, maybe not particularly violently, but enough for the bumpy to have to pull their car over. And then once that person is pulled over, then they would rob the driver. And then if the driver were a woman in like William Davidson's case, um, they oftentimes wouldn't only rob them, but they would rape her as well. Oh my God. I can't tell you how many times when I was writing this that my text autocorrected to bump and grind. I can't. Oh Lord. I know. So, yeah. okay. So let's return back well, to Ursula Brown. <laughs> I, I do, I do have to tell you, like, I, I was, you know, kind of looking over this. I didn't know that bump and rob was a term, but I am pretty sure that that's what was attempted on me once. So stop. Nuh-uh. Yeah. So when I lived in Oakland, um, I was coming home. I want to say maybe from work, from the bar, but it, it was late. And I luckily, I, I made some poor decisions in my life. But that night, I hadn't really had much to drink. So I lived on this hill, um, kind of by Lake Merritt. And as I was going up the hill, there was this car in front of me, and they were stopped. And they were, I mean, for lack of a better word, like bumping music. And they, they had kind of like the doors open, and they were blocking the road. And I didn't want to you never want to like instigate anything in Oakland. So I just kind of waited for a second and the car's rocking around and whatnot. And then everybody got back into the car. And then all of a sudden 
they shifted it into reverse and I'm behind them. And so they start like charging back at me and it's a residential road, but they're, I mean, my guess is like, they're starting to like kind of floor it. uh, So it's getting up to, you know, like maybe like 30. So I have to like quickly put my stick shift car into reverse, which if anybody knows is terrible drive on Hill. And I'm trying to like avoid them down this Hill. And eventually I hit another car. Um, Like, Oh my God. I ran into a parked car on that street and I was just stopped there, and then the car just like took off and and went away. And I never knew what happened. But like now that I'm seeing this, my my thought is that if I hadn't hit anybody there, maybe they were trying to like they the car never hit me. I hit a parked car first, and then they drove away. Maybe terrifying. they were trying to rob me. Oh yeah, it was horrifying. <sighs> it's and, so scary, just as like and not just females, but particularly females that we have these like worries. Like my mom raised me like, make sure that you check under your car when you're walking up because people were like slashing people's ankles with razor blades under their car, like things like that. It's like, oh my, we have enough to deal with, you know, with like bears, but now we have to deal with that. Like, come on. <laughs> bears. Uh, I know. Black bear. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's some middle ground there, but I'm choosing not to highlight that. Um, so anyway, well, I just terrifying. had to get that I'm out so because I'm here. like, I'm like, oh my God, that made, that's probably what was going to happen. There was no, I was not getting out of the car for anyone. No, uh, that's so scary. Oh my God. But yeah. Well, I'm happy you're okay. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, so, uh, yeah. So, okay. Let me get back to, let me get back to Ursula here. So a little sidebar about Ursula. So I, I tried researching her as best I could because I, I was really hating the fact that I didn't know anything about her except like her grisly death. Um, and her age, but I couldn't find anything. So if anybody had any information about her, I would love to hear it personally. I just, I, it just was bugging me. So after Ursula's body was discovered, they linked Davidson to Ursula's murder after ballistic tests matched a gun that belonged to Davidson, which ballistics is a whole other can of Pandora's box in this like junk science bubble. I found some things about that, but that's not. Yeah, I didn't even get into that, but that has all kinds of problems too. This exact bullet from this exact gun is not. Yes. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's, it was interesting. I mean, that's, that's not the way that we're going, but just to, you know, since we are talking about junk science, I wanted to highlight that. So the, the gun that matched Davidson's gun was, it was found near the scene. And Davidson pled guilty for this, but not before he placed blame on Kevin Martin. So initially, Davidson claimed that Martin only helped him with a bunch of the robberies, those bump and robs. And then he doubled back and said that Martin also had a hand in the Halloween night murder of Ursula, which I always hate when criminals do this type of shit. It's like, I understand that there are a lot of reasons that these things can happen. Like, you know, maybe you receive a lesser sentence um, for the accused if they throw someone else under the bus or whatever. But from what I gathered in this situation, it seemed to me that Davidson brought Kevin Martin into this specifically to take the heat off of himself. And that just irritated me. Sure. I also have to say that I didn't realize I didn't put it together until you said the Halloween night murder. I had to like go back up at the notes. I'm like, oh, she was found November 1st. Oh, great. Yeah. It's ex- it's extra horrible. Absolutely. Elementary school, Halloween, wrongly <laughs> accused. Okay, we're hitting, we're checking a lot of boxes. A lot of buzzwords that Sarah has a problem with today. I'm sorry. I'm um, sorry. <laughs> uh, so 10 days after Ursula's body was discovered, 17-year-old Kevin Martin was arrested. At the time mm-hmm. of his arrest, Martin was, quote, 
addicted to PCP, and he pleaded guilty to a series of similar armed robberies, which I did not care for that depiction of Kevin, because regardless of whether it's true or not, mainly because, and I haven't mentioned it yet, but Kevin is a black man. And in this case, he's a 17-year-old black man. And I, I know that I'm in good company with you, Sarah, when I say that a young man of color in the early 80s was probably not met with the most like welcoming vibe by authorities. And using that, like addicted to PCP as his only descriptor, it alludes to his character. And in my opinion, it diminishes his worth. Like I kind of liken it to, and we'll most definitely cover this topic, but the whole calling someone a prostitute versus a sex worker because the term prostitute comes with a negative connotation. And unfortunately, then those people are given a lesser value than others. And I could just see people reading that portrayal of Kevin and lumping him into a drug addicts aren't worthy bunch of bullshit. But I, I digress. So so, so that goes back to like what we were just talking about with dispositional bias. There's a perfect mm-hmm. example right there. And also Absolutely. I feel like we can just go ahead and cross out the eight, the early 80s and just put any time in the history. Of yep. Yep. Absolutely. Including currently. Uh, yeah, another can open worms everywhere. Yep, yep, just had just had to say it. No, I, I'm glad you did. Um, so, but I digress. So, <laughs> <laughs> but we everyone digresses. <laughs> We're in a so, digression. the The prosecution is building their case, and this is where those sneakers that belong to Ursula that were found at the scene come into play. So, according to the prosecutors, there was a pubic hair found on Ursula's sneakers on uh, Ursula's sneaker. Um, and they had an FBI examiner who was prepared to testify that that hair matched a hair obtained from Kevin Martin. So as a red result flag, of red this, flag, red flag, red flag everywhere, <laughs> red flag for you flag and you everywhere. get a red flag and you get a red flag. <laughs> so as a result oh, of this it. evidence and y'all can't see me, I'm doing the air bunnies, but please air bunnies, the word evidence. Martin was now facing multiple life sentences. Should the case go to trial? So at this point, it's 1984, and he enters. We're just Alfred. we're just charging him as an adult. That's just out the window. That, we're not even. I can't. I it. couldn't even handle it. He's 17. Like he's black. He must be an adult. And he's addicted to PCP. I, it it's, mm-hmm. it angers me to my core. So at this point, it's 1984, and he enters an Alfred plea for manslaughter to avoid that heightened punishment, those multiple life sentences. So for those who don't know, um. An Alfred plea is is a way that the defendant can acknowledge that the prosecution has sufficient evidence to convict them, but they do not enter an admission of guilt. But I also, I just, every time I hear Alfred plea, I just think of Batman, like Alfred from Batman, his like butler pleading with the judge. I don't know. Don't go in my brain. It's a weird place. <laughs> so it's important to note that Martin maintained his innocence regarding the rape and murder of Ursula from the moment that he was arrested. He was sentenced to 35 to life in prison for manslaughter, rape, and robbery. And gentle reminder, Martin was only 17 at the time of the crime. So 35 to life based on one FBI analyst saying that his hair is a match to a hair found at the scene. 17 years old. During his time in prison, Martin wrote letters to the judge and to different defense attorneys claiming his innocence and hoping that they might revisit the DNA. And it actually worked. So it's now 2001, and a lawyer named Bernard, 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 George Bernard, Bernard. Shaw, I don't know, Bernard, <laughs> listen, <laughs> you never know, Bernard Grimm, things. I'm going to go with Bernard, Bernard, Bernard Grimm. Okay, I like Bernard, <laughs> oh, Grimm is a dope last name. Uh, seriously, 
aside. BRB while uh, I change my last name. <laughs> so Grimm began looking into this case. So buckle up. Okay. So Martin also pursued DNA tests at this time, but the DC police told him that the evidence from his case had been lost. Of course. Are we air bunnies again? No, yeah. Right. Well, air bunnies <laughs> lost again. Yeah. So one of the reports that I, uh, the reports that I read literally said that the hair fell out of the evidence bag, which I mean, that just blows my mind. The evidence just gets lost all the time. This is obviously not the first time that I had heard that, but it just it boggles the mind. This is another like, sorry, real quick. Um, no, please. I, when I was looking for a new job, I saw that there was a um, position to be like basically in charge of the evidence storage locker at cool. the course. Yeah, kind of like cool, right? But I think it paid like $20 an hour. And it, it sort of illuminates like how this stuff happens all the time. Like how yeah. do we keep losing evidence? Why Why is there no chain of custody being maintained? It's like, well, if you pay people slightly more than in and out, maybe they're not, they don't really care much. Uh, oh, absolutely. So yeah, anyway. And, and that's, I mean, it sucks because it's like, you know, you think about like incentivizing people, but it's like, how do you incentivize people? Everyone's there to make money. You're, when you work, you're essentially selling an hour of your life for whatever it is, you know? Yeah. Again, keeping it light with the philosophy. <clears throat> Anyways. <laughs> So yeah, so it just, it blows my mind that evidence just gets lost. So at this point, Martin sought to withdraw his plea after his new attorney, Bernard Grimm, discovered one, firstly, quote, the pubic hair was never actually recovered by either police at the scene or by the FBI analyst. Instead, a report from the FBI crime lab said that the pubic hair fell out of the evidence bag when it was opened. Yeah. Yeah. Like I mentioned before, it just fell out of the bag. And two, the original FBI report stated that the hair strand was, quote, or yeah, air bunnies, like that of Martin's. Like that of Martin's. Like, come on. Not exact. That was the report. Like, what the actual fuck? The FBI analyst notes also stated that the hair from the evidence bag was like the hair of the victim's own head. So we're just going with either option. Is But I I have to ask, so is is Ursula African-American as well? See, that's what I don't know. Oh. And that's why I, I and I don't, it, do, it does matter. And we do need to kind of have these conversations about things because like you said, systemically, the justice system is not set up to support people of color. And so I, I wanted to know more about her um, and I could not find that information out. So I would, I would love I to know. I was just going to make some other comment about, man, we still don't understand black hair, do we? Like, <laughs> could have been his, could have been hers. Oh, my God. So, Lord. so Martin, he then made the argument that his OG lawyer from the very beginning, and I get very, like, serial vibes from this, but his OG lawyer failed to examine the FBI report and failed to investigate the crime. Instead, his lawyer took the prosecutor's word that the hairs matched, resulting in Martin's original Alford plea. So Do both you know of his motions. had a public defender? I don't know that. Okay. Um, just, just wondering. But, you know, he's 17. I, I don't know. I don't know. And it, these are all really good questions because it does change, like, the circumstance of his situation. My my assumption is he probably did, and those poor people are overworked and underpaid. And- Absolutely they are. And they're, anyway, you know, they're doing God's work. They're trying. Yeah. So both but- of his motions, withdraw- both withdrawing his plea and DNA testing, were denied. Which I understand that. I, I get that it's like, well, it's time and money and whatever, but it's like, this is this 
these are the circumstances. So after the evidence couldn't be located, though, Martin was granted resentencing. So this time he was sentenced 15 to 30 for the robberies and a consecutive 15 to 30 for murder. So as a result of this resentencing, he was immediately eligible for parole, to which he was denied because he can't seem to catch a fucking break. But in 2009, he was finally granted that parole and released. He'd spent more than 26 years in prison at this point, and since he was 17 years old. Meanwhile, there were four other hair comparison-related exonerations that the Public Defender Service for the D.C. area were working on, what you, what you were mentioning before. And on those four other comparisons resulted in the U.S. Attorney's Office began reviewing cases where hair comparison testimony was used. So it turns out, as a result of this review, police were moving evidence to a new facility, and decades-old physical evidence was being barcoded and reorganized, and wouldn't you know, boxes from Martin's investigation turned up at this new facility. Oh, the wow. original hair was still not found, but other genetic evidence, including a rape kit, was recovered and subsequently tested. And don't even get me started on untested rape kits. Keep me on track, but... The DNA analysis on the rape kit came back and excluded Martin as the source of the sperm. The results okay. also found a match to none other than William Davidson, who at this point is very busy serving 65 to life for other offenses. So he's having a great time. According to the National Registry of Exonerations, quote, on July 21st, 2014, the prosecution and attorneys for Martin filed a joint motion to vacate his conviction on the basis of actual innocence. In court papers, Assistant U.S. Attorney Michael T. Ambrosino and Grimm, Bernard Grimm, wrote that the DNA testing conducted at the expense of the government, along with other factors, conclusively established that Kevin Martin is innocent of the rape and murder of Ursula Brown. Judge Robert Richter granted the motion, issued a certificate of innocence, and the charge was dismissed. So obviously, Martin filed a $30 million lawsuit against the District of Columbia in 2015, and he, it was settled in 2016 for $4.3 million. Talk about, you know, selling your life for... I know, I was just, go to I work, just pulled up my know? calculator, like, I'm going to do some, like, quick math here. What is, let's see, $4.3 million divided by 26 years. So he, mm -hmm. 165 a year for and, his prison time. And you have to think about... You know, before he taxes. To, and paying for his defense, his new defense. Because he, and I don't, I don't know if, I doubt that the lawyer did it pro bono. You never know. But at the same time, it's like. Those Innocence Project guys do. That's Yes. Yeah. That, and I just thought of that as I was saying it. But I mean, still, it's like he has a lot of expenses. And he also, he's coming out of this and he, he was 17. Plus no so amount of money. Have, it's his whole No life. amount of money. He doesn't have any he, experience in the work industry. You know, things like that. He missed out on, it's, it's life. And, so, and we know as a society, we, we just even though we say that prison is to like rehabilitate people or to serve a sentence, we never forgive people if they've been in prison. doesn't matter if they're no. exonerated, if they've served their sentence, anything. He's never going to get a regular job. Or no. Be a normal functioning person in society. Well, we hear about how often hiring, you know, people hiring for jobs, they'll look you up on social media. They'll Google you. You Google Kevin Martin's name, it's going to pop up. Sure, it's in the National Registry of Exonerations, but his name's going to pop up. And yeah. they're going to be like, hmm, I don't know that we want to be attached to that. That's so unfair. So Martin, he was the fifth man to be exonerated in the District of Columbia as a result 
of inaccurate or misleading FBI hair analysis. And again, that just blows my mind because it's like we look to these people to be such an authority figure in this like scientific realm. And it's like you were talking about people make mistakes and we have to acknowledge the fact that it's not a perfect system and we are still learning. It is really in its infancy and it's just going to continue to grow and hopefully things like this don't happen. But 26 years, I I can't. And this is extra damning too because, you know, like in my thing I was talking about how you get these uh, expert witnesses that are what would you say outright whores or cranks yeah somebody who works for the fbi this is a federal agency we're supposed to be able to trust and Mm -hmm. rely upon this is the the creme de la creme of crime investigation in this country like yeah if it's wild yeah it's horrifying quote i am free at last i am humbled i never gave up martin said hugging and high-fiving his attorneys Martin's younger sister, his fiance, good for him, his six-year-old niece, and other family members gathered around. I just want to live, said Martin, now 50. Oh, God. And so I have some photos um, attached that I will post uh, of Martin, and it's just, uh, it's just heartbreaking. You can see them in my notes, Sarah, if you look at down at the bottom, but that's Kevin. I, I mean, did. You look at you look at him as a, as a young kid, and then... It's that's a grown man. It's just it's insane. It thank always, you, Innocence Project, and thank you, uh, Bernard Grimm, for taking that case. He's he's like, I mean, you could at least say my name, right? I now. know he's you like, want, really really wanted to thank me, Bernard. Sorry, sorry Bernard. <laughs> <laughs> it it always humbles me I guess is maybe the word I'm searching for like when you hear about these people who are exonerated after all of this like wrongdoing was committed against them after all these years that they lost and I feel like they're always just so gracious they're always Absolutely. just so happy to be free they don't really you don't get a sense of like them being vindictive or anything and I just can't even imagine yeah I mean it just my mind goes right to in uh Chicago when she's like not guilty and then she's the one that gets hanged or like Shawshank I don't know my, I mean my mind always goes to Shawshank but I just don't we all <sighs> <laughs> so yeah I'm ha- happy for you Kevin and I really hope that you know he he does get to live somewhat of a normal life you said this was in he was released in 2014 he was okay. paroled yeah finally paroled, when he was actually me. Yes. And then judge had to then send out that innocent like document or whatever it is that they have to do to make I'm, sure. You I'm know. so curious. Like, is there a where is he now? I mean, we've had some time. I want I know. Uh, I would love. Like Kevin Martin is such a it's kind of a generic name. I'm like, I, I know. <laughs> Does he have a Facebook? I'm going to try and find him like stalk him on Instagram. He's like, can you please leave me alone? Thanks. <laughs> I, I just, you, you said it. I just want to live. Leave me alone. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're rooting for you though, Kevin. We are rooting for you, Kevin. So, and thank you, Innocence Project for all that you do. And that's all we have for you today here. Uh, Death and Syntaxes podcast. Thanks for listening to Death and Syntaxes. Our theme music is by Elaine LaGuerta. Visit us at deathandsyntaxespodcast.com or send us an email at deathandsyntaxespod at gmail.com. You can also find us on Instagram at death and syntaxes pod and Twitter at death underscore syntaxes. Bye friends.